son, that parable. And uh, it's simply entitled, A Tale of Two Sons. I'm going to finish that up tonight. Um, in fact, I'll go ahead and let you be seated. I've been standing for a little while. I'll let you be seated as you collapse into the pew. There are a couple pews that are on the work project, so don't collapse too hard. <laughs> there are a few things missing. Hey Amen. But started this a few weeks ago, Tale of Two Sons, and since that time I've since discovered there is a book titled this, so I apologize to the author of that book. I know that he will be listening avidly. <laughs> Renowned Christian authors are anticipating the next podcast that comes out. So, but a tale of two sons, and I'm going to read... Uh, the end of the part of the, the, the story, the prodigal son, a story that many people are familiar with. Uh, but this is the end. We pick it up after the, the wayward son has come home in Luke chapter 15 and verse 25. It says this, Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. That's a special kind of music when it has a K. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, whose name was Lo, These many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. The end of the what we know as the prodigal son, that parable, it's been entitled that. And uh, just a, a quick recap, because it was several weeks ago and I forgot what I said, so I just want to remind myself, but in this story we find three figures, the father, the wayward son, and the faithful son. And really, as, as there's, a, there's a, a whole lot of things that have been written and surmised about this story, and really the story starts out with a father that had two sons, and we know that as soon as Jesus mentions that beginning, he's speaking to the Jews, he's speaking to Pharisees and a crowd that's gathered there, that immediately their mind goes back to all the Old Testament stories of a father and two sons, beginning from Adam with Cain and Abel. And so already they realize, probably from the start, as they think of Jacob and Esau and all of the brothers that are famous in the Old Testament that were the stories that they grew up with, they know that there is some sort of conflict that's probably going to take place. And the first thing that we gather from this story we talked about a few weeks ago is that really this is not a parable about a lost son. It's a parable about two lost sons. We realize that uh, as the story progresses, as we get to the end of the story, because it is kind of an unusual thing here that these verses that we read really seem like uh, they were copied and pasted onto the end of the story. It seems like a, a fitting end that it should end with the younger son coming home and they say, kill the fatted calf and there's a big party and it seems like the curtain should fall and that should be the end of the play. And yet Jesus throws this, these last few uh, details onto the end of the story, which really add 
a whole other layer to what's going on. And we realize that it's about two lost sons. That while one is very obviously lost, the other one is not quite so obviously lost, but is still just as lost as the other son. And we gather from this that the elder son was in the field, that he was in the house. But the first thing we realize is that being near or even in the house does not equate with salvation. Because we find a very interesting way the story ends, and we'll come back to this again tonight. But we have no resolution to this story. In fact, if you were to write this story, it would would not be a, a final story if you turned it into someone, because there is no resolution to the story. We are left with the elder son and the father having a conversation outside of the house while the party goes on, and it just ends, and we don't know what really happens. And so we realize... That, that we don't know if the son, the elder son ever enters into the house. We don't know if he leaves that day. We don't know if he changes his mind. What happens? But we know that being in the house does not equate with salvation. We also discover that the house cannot save you, only the heart can. The house cannot save you. Being in the church alone cannot save you. We need the church, but the church alone cannot save you. It is important that our heart is right. No matter how much time that you spend in the house, no matter how much time you spend in the work of the house, no matter how much time you spend in the fields and learning all about the house, it is your heart that matters. That God is returning not to judge what you necessarily did just in the house, but He is also coming to look at the secret counsels of your heart. Now that doesn't mean that your works don't matter and we can get into a big long uh, uh, discourse on this, but we're not. We also discover that being near the Father doesn't mean that you have the Father's heart or values. This is very obvious from this story. I, I think that we, we can establish the fact that when the, when the lost son, when the wayward son returned home, we see that the father runs out to meet him. And, and that gives us the idea that he was looking for his son, that he had exited the house, that he was standing on the road looking for his son. And I would venture to say that this was not the first time that the father had done that, whether it was a once a week occurrence or I would say a daily occurrence that he would meander out to the road and just look down the road to see if his son was coming back, it was an obvious fact that that father wanted his son to return. I'm sure he spoke about his son. I'm sure he wondered aloud, I wonder where my son is. I wonder how my son is doing. And I'm sure the elder son heard all of that. And yet still when the younger son returned, the elder son became bitter. Because he had been around the father the whole time. He knew the father's heart. He knew the father's values. He knew how the father felt about that younger son. And yet being around all of that, it still never developed the father's heart inside of him. The last thing that we looked at a few weeks ago was that the elder son the entire time, it's such a telling statement and it would be interesting to look at all the things that are contained within the father's house. But the father tells the elder son when he comes out, He says, everything that I have is yours, and it was yours the whole time. And we're confronted with the fact that things happen in other people's lives that are big things. And I think we should celebrate those big things. I think if a miracle happens in somebody's life, that we should celebrate those things. However, I cannot become distracted by the feast in somebody else's life when God has provided for me daily. 
You see, that's the danger about the small daily provision is that we begin to minimize what God is doing. We talked about the Israelites, how the first day that manna fell, that was a miracle. They were astounded. They were amazed. They couldn't believe that this food had fallen from heaven. And then the next day when they woke up and gathered it, they were amazed that food had fallen from heaven. And the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, are you kidding me? Is this all the food we're getting from heaven? That pretty soon the miraculous, when it happened on a daily basis, became mundane. Was the, was the manna any less miraculous on day 200 and whatever than it was on the first day? No. It was the attitude of the people towards the miracle. And this elder son is the same way. It was just as miraculous that he hadn't gone astray and that he had received everything and that he had been kept, but he had lost sight of that fact in the face of the feast in someone else's life. We get distracted by the big things. We looked at some of the things that the Father provides daily. When I'm in the house, that there's protection, that there's safety, that His grace and mercy are there, that there's daily provision. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, He entreats us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And so we're left with the question, would I rather have a feast every so often, or would I rather have the daily bread? I know the daily bread isn't quite so astounding when we look at some of the other things, but the Lord's miraculous provision every day is still miraculous. And this week we're going to look at a few more things that we can gather from the character of this elder son and what Jesus tells us about him. We mentioned the elder son was really... Until the verses that we read, if you were to look at the story, if, you were, if the story was to end at chapter 24, really you would say the elder son was the perfect son. When his brother went off the rails, he stayed. When the workload got heavier because the younger son had left, he picked up the slack. When the responsibilities of the estate began to fall more on him, he was the elder son, he was able to handle it. We find that on this very occasion that he returns from working in the fields. He was where he was supposed to be. He was doing what he was supposed to be. How many of you like a kid that just does that? (laughs) He cleaned his room. When you would go in his room and say, you know what, it's time to, oh, you've already cleaned it. I would expect nothing less. (laughs) this was a, He was the elder. He knew that the estate would come to him. He was gathering knowledge about how it all worked. He was doing everything that was... He, he wasn't afraid of work, and he accepted his responsibility as the eldest, and now that the younger had left, as the only son that he had something to uphold. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, anyway, man, we get off track here. But he was really, if you had a choice, if you were going to say, okay, which of these two sons would you pick for your own, you would probably pick the elder son. This is the kid that you would want. In fact, the only negative we have of him is not until the very end of the story. We wouldn't consider him negative if that last part that we read was not attached to the story. And here's the problem we see at the end of the story, but we don't realize until the end, is that what is going on outwardly did not match what was going on inwardly. That there was something going on inside this young man every day that he went to the field, every day that he put in the work, every day that he did what he was supposed to do. There was something inwardly that did not match his outward actions. Outwardly, the son was the perfect son. He was at home. He was fulfilling the responsibilities, doing everything that could be expected, being relied upon. In fact, if you could put this into character traits, you would say that he was loyal. You would say that he was consistent. You would say that he was trustworthy. You would say that he was faithful. 
Which of those things would you not consider important in your life? Which of those things would you not look for in somebody, never mind your own child? These were things that were, were, it, you would look at this man and say, in fact, with this ending dropped, uh, it, it, you would be shocked to find out that this son was the negative side of the story. You would be shocked. You would think maybe it's the wayward son, of course, that's the one who, who takes his inheritance and wastes it, or maybe the father who breaks protocols to welcome his son back, but you would never consider this eldest son. But we find that the response of the elder brother to the situation he encountered upon his return from the field, it reveals to us something that was inside the whole time, that inside his heart we don't know when it took place. We don't know when it happened. We, I don't know if it was the moment that his brother left. But at some point, bitterness began to develop in his heart towards his brother. This was a bitter brother. <laughs> I won't ask if you're a bitter brother here tonight for all the times and things you had to put up with. I, I commiserate with all of you elder children. We have, we have it rough, I know. We have a responsibility that no, no other children can understand. You're the one that got in trouble for all the stuff your younger siblings just get away with, right? I remember the day I tried to point that out to my parents. They reminded me of a few things. <laughs> Couldn't sit down for a little bit after that one. <laughs> but I'm sure there were times in this elder son's life in the heat of the day maybe in the middle of harvest time throughout the years when that younger brother crossed his mind. And while the younger brother may have crossed the mind of the father, I'm sure it crossed the mind of the elder brother in a slightly different way. <laughs> crossed his mind probably by, with a few choice thoughts afterwards. If I could just get my hands on, what a waste. What in the world leaving me here? I'm sure that there were some things that he began to think in his own head. I'm sure there were moments in the quiet of the evening as, as he sat after a hard day's work, after doing everything that he was supposed to, and finally sitting down for the evening next to his father. Then all of a sudden, his father begins to talk about how much he misses the younger son. I'm sure something inside of him begins to play in his mind, that something begins to happen, that as he maybe even hears the father praying for the younger son, that something in him would begin to grate inside of him, because he was still the one here. He was still the one here doing all the work. And we have to notice this. This is important for us because the context of this entire passage is, is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to them. These are the religious people. These are the people that if you could put them into our vernacular today, these are the people in church that he is speaking not to those that are lost, but to those who would be considered saved. And we have the elder son as a warning to us. That there can be things that look all right on the outside, yet inwardly something is churning inside of us that is not right. We need to notice that the elder son was able to work in the fields, that he was able to perform his kingdom obligations, that he was able to go into the class and teach Sunday school, that he was able to gather a microphone and sing the songs or play the instrument, yet inside there was something unresolved going on and nobody knew about it until a moment happened. Let me remind you that buried and hidden feelings and hurts do not equal resolved issues. Amen. Just because nobody can see it does not mean it is resolved. And if it's not resolved, at some point it will come to the surface. 
Let me just note, too, that the elder brother's feelings could most definitely be justified. Now, see, this is where it gets tricky, is when we're justified in how we feel. Because I have a list of things that it's all right for me to feel upset about. If they do this, I'll, I'll, I'll be all right up to a point. But then when someone crosses the line, I won't ask where your line is and who's crossed it lately. But there's a line we have, and when they cross it, we feel justified in how we feel in our response to that person. And I would say that this elder brother should feel, if we just look at this from a strictly non-spiritual sense, I didn't want to say carnal, but we could say that he was most definitely justified in how he felt. In fact, we might spiritualize it and try and make ourselves feel better and call it, well, he just had righteous indignation. No. It's interesting to see that it didn't matter their differing personalities. It didn't matter their way of looking at things. It didn't matter whether the elder brother was justified, whether he had just cause to be upset at his brother. We do know that when all of these feelings were brought to light, though, is that moment when his brother returned. And at some point... All of those feelings that you have worked so hard to bury, all of those things that you have worked so hard to cover up, will come out eventually. (laughs) And the thing is, is you don't know when. You'll be coming home from the field one day and you'll hear the music with the K. And you'll wonder what in the world is going on. And you'll know it's different because there's a K. And you'll think, what in the world is happening? And all of a sudden, the things that you... It may have been weeks since you thought about that. It may have been months since this guy thought about his younger brother. We don't know, but all of a sudden, in a moment, everything that he had ever felt and thought came rushing to him in a split second. And he is faced with all of those feelings, all of those fears, all of those hurts, all of those pains. And let me tell you, those things in your life that you have buried, that you have hidden, that you have covered up, one day it will come to the surface and you will be unprepared for what is waiting for you. And what's scary though about this is that we realize that it's not just about bitterness towards a brother. Because it is impossible to have bitterness towards a brother without it ultimately turning towards bitterness to the father. Scripture is very emphatic in that it's impossible to harbor things against another brother or sister and it not affect your relationship with God. <laughs> let me just let you in on a secret. If this hasn't happened to you, then this, this will. At some point in your life, God's going to do something that you don't agree with. <laughs> he, he'll do it. Depending on you, He may do it more often than not. Who do stuff you don't agree with? And when he starts doing stuff I don't agree with, with people I got issues with, my anger begins to shift from that person to the father. And all of a sudden we find this elder son. It's not just a horizontal relationship that's in trouble. His salvation is at stake. His his very salvation is at stake. You see, Scripture is very emphatic, and again, we're not going to go way down this road, and and, and I've taught about this before, but it is impossible to have horizontal relationships, that is, relationships with people, especially within the church, with people that are in the kingdom of God. It is impossible to have relationships that are damaged and it not begin ultimately to be a salvation issue in your life. It is impossible. In fact, John says it very plainly, "How how can you love God whom you've not seen 
when you can't love the person you can see. And you're telling God, well, that's the problem. I can see him. If you just get him out of the way and I didn't have to see him anymore, I'd solve it all. Even now, Lord, come quickly for them. I know they've walked with God. Take them like Enoch. Just let them go out for a walk and they're no more. Just gone. Or the fire. Send the chariot of fire. Something. But at some point, your anger shifts to God. And in his anger, he begins to compare his actions to that of his brothers. And, and, and we see that there is a deception with this bitterness. And it's, it's this cycle of deception that as I begin to, to harbor feelings against somebody else, that it, it changes my view of what I'm doing as well. Because he says that he's been in his father's house, and, and while the younger son has been out doing all this stuff, he's never transgressed whatsoever. <laughs> you ever been in one of those arguments where never comes up? Well, you never... Okay, so you're telling me never. I've never, you always, oh, come on now. That's not good when it gets into the never, because most of the time it's not never and always. There's an in-between there. I would venture to say that at some point in this guy's life, he had, me he had messed up. He had not lived a perfect life to this moment, but his bitterness had clouded his own view of himself until now he has placed himself above someone else. It clouded his judgment. He saw himself as better than. He was no longer equal to his brother. He was better than his brother. You see what bitterness and harboring things will begin to do to you? That all of a sudden you begin to look down on other people. And before long you find yourself in the exact situation of the Pharisees. Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like the publican. That's exactly what this elder son was saying. I've never transgressed. I'm glad I'm not like him. You know, I know we all say that we're equal at the foot of the cross, but there's some people that challenge that in our lives. <laughs> we think they're a little bit further down the hill of Calvary than us. And really, we begin to build a hierarchy of people and sins. And when God crosses one of our fairness cards, our anger begins to shift to Him. So we have this unusual dynamic, this warning that, that God tells this. And really, if we look at this parable in the context, the whole point of this story is the elder son. That is, that is the, the crowd that he is talking to is the elder son crowd. And he's warning them against this bitterness that begins to creep in because the bitterness begins to make its way towards the father. And we find also within this elder son, we find where there's suddenly a, a, a shift in his life. Again, we don't know the details, and that's really the thing, is that these things probably don't happen in just a moment. They take place over time, and that it's probably not just one thing that leads to bitterness, but it's continual, unresolved issues. And in this next part two, it's not just it's, it's not one-time thing. It's a gradual drifting away from what we know to be true. We find the elder son, at some point, he shifts from sonship and privilege to the role of servant, and he serves out of obligation and duty. You see, this is interesting because both sons have an incorrect view of their father. Neither son really knows the father because both of them view themselves as his servants. The younger son, when he comes back, he says, I just want to be a servant in your house. The elder son says, I've served you all these years. Neither one of them claimed sonship. They were both his sons. They both didn't realize how the father viewed them, how the father felt about them. There was an incorrect view of how God viewed them. 
And it's in this, that, that shift from sonship and privilege of everything that I have is yours. You, you could have had anything at any point to the elder son saying, I've served you all these years and you've never given me anything. We find the danger and the fault of the Pharisees in this. You see, their service for God was so important to them. Their relationship with Him should have been one of joy and reward. Yet it was one of constraint and burden. We find Jesus speaking to the Pharisees this way. And it says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 24, it says, Ye blind guides would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now that's an image there. Straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. And this goes into how they would, if they would find... Uh, getting into all the gnats that would get into when they would make uh, drinks and straining things and all this, they would have to pull the most minuscule thing out so that it didn't mess up the entire batch of whatever it was they were cooking or baking or, or whatever it was. They would pull out every tiny little thing because it would destroy the entire thing. And he says, you're so concerned about these little tiny things and yet there's these massive things that you don't take care of. We know that justice and truth and love these things were not in the minds of the Pharisees. They were so concerned with straining out a gnat. And this is the imagery of those who have really lost purpose. They have lost the joy of their calling as they strain out a gnat. They've lost the joy of their calling. They, we don't read anywhere where a Pharisee ever said, Oh, I'm so thankful that God has called me. I'm so thankful that He has used me. I'm so thankful that I can follow His law. No, they're too busy straining out a gnat. They're stu still too busy, uh, lost in the purpose of what they're really doing. And with this attitude, with this attitude, comes the idea or the expectation of recompense. The expectation of recompense. Or to put it another way, and this, this affects us from time to time, even though we don't like to admit it, that we get the feeling that because of all that we've done, God owes us something. Because of what we've done, God owes us something. That's exactly what the elder son said. I've served you all these years, and you didn't do anything. You owe me. And I know, I know it's, in, it's, it's not in the easy moments that we feel. I know we won't just raise our hand and say, yeah, right now I feel like God owes me. I think he should give me a, a million dollars. No, it's in the tough moments. It's in the moments when we come home and the bitterness and feelings and it's a rough situation happens. And we say, God, look at all I've done for you. Look at how I've lived for you. And now you're going to make me sick. Now I'm terminal. Now I've lost this. Now this has happened. And it's in those moments that our character comes up and all of a sudden it, it reveals our walk with God. Amen. Has our walk with God been one of purpose? Has it been one which, which is, is done out of love because we recognize the Father? Or at some point did we lose the idea that we are sons and children of God and all of a sudden we're just servants just doing what He commands us to do? Because God did not call us just to be servants. No, He called us to be His children. He called us to be sons and daughters. And with that is a privilege. And because of that, there should be a joy in my walk with God. There should be pleasure in my walk with God. God, you should at least give me a goat. That would at least make my wife happy right now. I don't know why she wants a goat. But we've already determined if we get a goat, we have to get one of the screaming goats and then one of the fainting goats. 
We can just watch them. <laughs> All once a goat. We get the feeling, though, based on the portrayal of, of the character of the elder son and of the Pharisees who he represents, really, that a party would be the last thing that would ever happen in their life. Because really, the work was too important to stop. This elder son could have asked for a party at any time, but he didn't. You know why? Because the joy was no longer there. It never crossed his mind in all of the working, and all of the responsibility, and all of the doing, that there should be pleasure in what he was doing. How many of us for days, weeks, months, as we look back, realize that our walk with God has not been one of pleasure, but it's just been doing and doing, and this is what I'm supposed to do, and I don't have a choice, and we end up like the Pharisees just straining out gnats every single day, and the entire time God has said, no, I have given you joy, I have given you pleasures forevermore, no, I have given you position, I have given you authority. You see, the obligation and the duty was more important than even enjoying the benefits it's in the house that the Father had provided. I know there's moments when we don't feel like doing certain things and we just have to do it. I don't feel like praying, but I'm going to pray. I don't feel like reading the Word, but I'm going to read. I don't feel like coming to church, but I know there's moments that we have to do those things. But when my life becomes one of obligation and duty, and I'm just doing things because I need to check myself, I need to say, what, am, what is my walk with God really about? Have I lost touch with the Father? When was the last time I just stopped and communicated with Him one more time? You see, really, we get the idea that the party would be beneath him. <laughs> we get the party would be beneath him. And then we steal Jesus' line and say, oh, no, I've got to be about my father's business. I'm too busy for all of that. You see, that's really what Martha was saying when she was talking to Jesus about Mary. Shouldn't she be about busy doing something? Jesus said, no, she's chosen the better thing. But we start entering dangerous territory when we begin to require something of God. When we begin to feel like, you know what, God, you, you owe me this. And while we may not say it that way, that's what we feel inside. Romans chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If we just rephrase this a little so we can maybe understand it better. It said, if you want to start recording what is owed and credited, then God will do that. He'll go ahead and do that for you. And the first thing he'll do is remove his grace from the equation. If you want to talk about what you're owed, if you want to talk about the credit and the balance sheet that you have going with God, then God says, that's fine, we'll do that. But I'm going to remove grace from the equation, and that's where we're starting from. And you and I know that we owed a debt that we could never pay. We know that grace covered something that it was impossible for us to do. I can't have his grace removed. I need his grace every single day. That debt becomes insurmountable. No matter what I've done, I must have His grace working in my life. And I want to say this, and man, i got to finish up here. It's important for us to understand this too as we look at this, that God is not looking for a debtor-creditor relationship. He's not looking for debtors to serve Him. This is a little tricky because I owe God everything. I would have nothing without God and His grace. However, He's not looking for me to serve Him because I owe Him. 
He's looking for me to serve him because I love him. And while I can use that sometimes for motivation that God's done so much for me, this is the least that I can do for Him. I cannot live my life that way because at some point, because it's human nature, I believe, at some point I will feel like I've cleared my debt. At some point I will say, haven't I done enough? When the whole thing is it's not about the doing, it's about His grace that covered everything. It's about me serving Him because I love Him regardless of what He asks and regardless of what I have to do. This is a relationship that's about love. I want to do what the Father asks because I love Him, not because I owe Him. I want to do what the Father asks because I have His heart. I have His values. I see things the same way that He does, not simply because I have to. The only reason I'm in the house to begin with even if there's a party going on that makes me mad for a brother who ticks me off is because of the Father. The only reason I'm in the kingdom of God to begin with is because of the Father. The end of chapter 14 gives us a warning that I believe connects to this story. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 34, it says, Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath the ears to hear, let him hear. It doesn't matter where the salt has lost its flavor, whether it's in a far country like the younger son, or whether it's in the father's house, salt without flavor is good for nothing. You see, what the elder son really needed, this is where I come back to, what do I do when I get to the position that I feel like God owes me something? How do I pull myself out of this situation? Because it's, it's not just about, I've got to pull Pull my socks up. <laughs> Things cross my mind in the strangest of ways. When I was in fifth grade, this kid was getting reamed out in front of the class by the teacher, and she told him that he needed to pull his socks up because his work wasn't good enough, and he reached out and pulled his socks up, and the teacher just about lost it on him. It was a good day. <laughs> he needed it. But it's not just about do better. It's not just about pull your sock. It's not, and I know that we encourage ourselves, there's all these things, but there is a solution when I find myself in this relationship where all of a sudden I begin to find myself thinking that God, I deserve something from God. What the elder son really needed was what the psalmist David said in Psalms 51. He says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. You see, what the elder son really needed was a restoration of joy. You see, what the Pharisees really needed was a restoration of joy. The, the fact that they were just in the father's house. You see, that's what the father told him. He said, you've been in my house the whole time. Didn't you realize where you were the whole time? Don't you remember the joy of just entering into my house? Don't you remember the beginning, that point of salvation when, when everything was possible, when I would do anything for God, when I realized that all I had was because of him, when I felt like if he never did anything else, he'd already done enough for me. Remember those moments, that joy of my salvation. And really, that's what the elder son is left with. Will you join the party? Will you feel the joy of someone else's salvation? Will your joy be restored to you? 
And the challenge is for you and I to revisit that point every so often in our life. That at points we must have those, those moments when we revisit the joy of our salvation. When we realize it's enough that I'm saved. It's enough that He reached down and pulled me out of the miry pit. It's enough that His grace was sufficient to cover all of my sins. His blood was enough to cover. That that's enough and He doesn't owe me anything else. But Lord, I'm just thankful that I'm saved. I'm thankful that I'm in the house. I'm thankful that I know who you are. You see, when I remember that I'm in the house, that outshines any party that's going on, that outshines any other blessing, that outshines the goat that I never got, that outshines the healing that I never received, that outshines the raise that I never got, the promotion I never received. When I just realize I'm in the house, I realize that God doesn't owe me anything, but no, I owe Him everything. To Him, I owe my all. You see, I need a renewed sense of my position and my place when I lose sight of who I am. Luke 15, 31, the Father says, It's Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. I need a renewed sense of who I am in the kingdom of God, of where He has placed me, of what I have available to me. And we are left with the unfinished ending to the person who feels that God has wronged you. To the person who feels like there's something that is missing that God has not done for you. The ending is really the same as this story. It's up to you. It's up to you. Is the statement that the father makes, because this is where we're left. We're left with the elder son and this question, not question, but statement hanging in the air. Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Is that enough to restore you? Is it enough to realize that I'm a child of God? Can the Father's promise cut through the injustice and unfairness that you feel? Can it cut through the bitterness towards somebody else? Can the promise that the Father has you in His house, that you are ever with Him, and that all that He has is yours, be enough? And the real question is, will you enter the party with your brother and the rest of the house? And I close with this. In this story, we find a true picture or a typology that we find later on in Scripture. Because not only does the elder brother represent the Pharisees, but we find later on in Scripture that Jesus Christ is the elder brother. Jesus is a type of the elder brother. Let me just say it this way. He deserves better than you. He deserves way more than I ever do. I'm the wayward son. I'm the one who went out and tried to do it all on my own, and that was just yesterday. (laughs) I'm the one who thought I had a better way. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of this kingdom of God, that he is the first, he is the eldest. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, 
for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God's not ashamed to call you brethren. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. You see, Jesus Christ is the elder brother. We are joint heirs with Jesus. He is the elder son. And we find in Jesus Christ the perfect example of what should have been taking place in this story. Because in this story... What should have happened was the elder son, as soon as he came home, he should have ran to the door. He should have been the host of the party. He should have been the one welcoming everyone at the front door saying, welcome into the party. My brother has come home. My father has prepared a feast. Tell everyone to come into the house. You see, that's what Jesus Christ does. He is standing at the door. In fact, he is the door. And there is no other way to get in except through the door. But he stands there and welcomes whosoever will come into the house he welcomes them with open arms and he says come on into the house there is rest there is what you need inside of the house And he doesn't share all the work that he's done. He's not there to remind you of everything that's happened. He's not there to share his complaints and what should be his. No, his simple fact is there to welcome. In fact, Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, earlier in this chapter about lost things, it says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. You know, the role that I play in this story is that as soon as I come into the house, I I need to join the elder brother at the door. I need to be a part of the church, the welcoming committee. The spirit and the bride say, come. Whosoever will, will, let him come into the house. I need to remind people that the debt has been paid, that everything has been paid for you, that you can find a way into the house. I stand with Jesus, welcoming whoever will come into the door. Come and I will give you rest. He is the door. He is the elder brother. And he welcomes you and I into the house. I'm faced with that choice. Will I join him at the door? Will I lay aside everything that I have? Will, will, will I, I lay aside all of the, the, the negative side that we have? If you could, we have two choices of the elder brother. Standing at the door welcoming or standing outside the door wondering and waiting and angry outside. As we stand this evening. I believe from time to time we have to have that joy restored. I know there's been moments in my life when the service, when the field drew my attention. This isn't referring to lost souls in the story. I know the fields are wide and ready to be harvested. I know that send forth laborers. It's not referring to lost souls in this particular instance. It's referring to the service and the work of the kingdom of God. And there's things that have to be done. There's things that have to take place. But we've come to moments in our life, if you've lived for the Lord any amount of time, where all of a sudden the work, the surrounding things, begin to take your eyes off of the Father. They begin to take your eyes off of what His desires are. And before long you find yourself doing things for reasons that aren't the same reason that the Father's doing them. Every day the Father woke up And the younger son was on his mind. Every day when he woke up. If you have children, I'm sure you can identify with that. That if there's a need, if there's something going on with your children, that you wake up and that's what you think about. It doesn't matter if if some news came to you in that moment. It's just what's on your mind. But at some point, 
that left the elder brother's mind. I'm sure it was there for, I wonder where my brother is, but at some point, the work grabbed his attention more than the desires of the father. The elder brother should have been there with the father. He should have joined him on the road watching for the younger son. And there's those moments when we forget, when all of the rest of it takes our attention. And God simply needs to restore to us the joy of our salvation. That we simply come to that realization again, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm saved. And it's not just a statement because we know that there's joy unspeakable from the Lord. We know there's a joy that's not of this world. So it's not just a a, a mantra that I can repeat to myself and makes me feel better. No, there's something spiritual that takes place. There's some joy that's supernatural that takes place that lifts us out of everything else and we realize who we are in Jesus Christ. I wonder right now if perhaps you have found yourself in that place, if you have found yourself needing that joy restored, I wonder if we could pray right now, Lord Jesus, Lord, that you would restore right now. Lord, life has a way of taking things from us. We have a way of turning our eyes from you, of allowing the weeds to grow, of allowing the thorns to begin to choke out. And Lord, I pray right now that you would restore to someone the joy of their salvation. Lord, that you would give them a renewed energy, a renewed passion for the kingdom, for your desires, for your heart, God. Lord, that you would turn our eyes back towards you. Lord, that your kingdom is important, Lord. Your desires are important, God. That there's it, My walk with you should not be one of drudgery and just going through the motions, but Lord, there should be joy. Lord, I pray that you would do something supernatural, that you would stir something in someone that's supernatural, God, that goes beyond anything this world can offer. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Give us your desires, Lord. Give us your eyes, Lord, that look down the road. Give us your heart that's constantly seeking for that lost son. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. I worship you, God. I praise your name, Lord. Do your work in somebody's heart and life right now, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Encourage somebody right now, Lord. Give them the strength right now they need, God. Lord, it's your joy which is our strength, God. When we're weary, it's your joy. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. God has given us a great parable. He's given us a warning. And it's important for me to check myself every so often because like it or not, the Pharisees simply represent a lot of the flesh. And I battled the flesh every single day. And I I don't like when I read the Pharisees and begin to think, hmm, they got a little point there. (laughs) It's time for me to quit straining gnats and swallowing camels and remember that I'm called to the kingdom of God. Amen. Thank you for being here in service tonight. I thank you for worshiping, for making the effort to be here tonight. Continue to remember our young people in prayer this week. Amen. Be here Sunday. Believe in the Lord for great things. Amen. You're dismissed this evening.